morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Especially uh, a warm welcome to those of you who are visiting this morning and found us. I'm always astonished that people can find us in the middle of a hotel, so you are especially welcome. Um, I don't know uh, some of the others who are visiting today, but I know that Janice is here um, to see your dad, is that right? Or your uncle. Uh, so you are very welcome, all of you, and hope you will enjoy this service. I think God must have sent you especially because a good few of our folk are having a well-deserved break this weekend, so you've kind of taken their, their chairs. <laughs> um, please stay and have a cup of tea or coffee with us after the service. If you turn left outside the door, you'll find... Just listening to that, Anne, I was thinking, goodness gracious, um, it's all women preachers and has been for quite a while, hasn't it? I've had two weeks when I wasn't preaching. And we had women, and it's women in the evening, so we're shifting the balance. (laughs) Our call to worship this morning comes from Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Our first hymn this morning is Take This Moment, Sign and Space. A song expresses something of our community and the presence of God. And if you're able, you are invited to stand as we sing.
And so we're going to come before God in prayer now. And after I have guided us in prayer, which will include some silent spaces for our own responses in our hearts, um, we will join together in the Lord's Prayer using, and you're invited to use whichever version and whichever language feels the most natural to you. And it's always beautiful to hear an expression of heavenly worship as we pray together in many languages. And if you're not sure of the words, there will be a version on the screen. Loving God, as we approach you in prayer, we are grateful that there are no entry qualifications for us to do so. We can come just as we are, wherever we have come from, and whatever our week has been like. We can come knowing that you already know all about us, and yet you still delight to receive our worship and praise, and long to erase and forgive our sins, our regrets and our shortcomings. No matter what our past week has been like, there is always something for which we can be grateful, however mundane or insignificant. For kind words and smiles, for tasks completed, for signs of spring, for the moments when we laughed, for the things that made us go, hmm. And for those things that we now name silently in our hearts. No matter what our last week has been like, there is always something that mars our joy, however minor or trivial. A sense of injustice a moment of regret, a missed opportunity, a careless word spoken, things that made us rage or weep or both, ways in which we let down or were let down by others. And for the things that only we know, and that we name now in the quiet of our hearts. Confident that you bear no grudges and keep no record of sins, we know ourselves to be forgiven and restored to continue our journeys of life and faith, both together and apart. And so we join with others around the world using our heart languages to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We're going to begin today by thinking about nicknames. Does anybody have a nickname that they're prepared to admit to? Katrina? Cat. Cat. Yeah, I get that one as well. Uh, in some circles, I'm Rev Cat. That's one of my nicknames. Yeah. Anybody else? Wendy? Wendy is Okay, Wendy is a nickname because you're really something else. You're really a Margaret. Yep. Anybody else? Got yeah, there you go. You see, you find something new every Sunday. What do you get called? Bonnie says, oh, she's not allowed to tell. Let me think. Do you get called Bonzarella? No. Um, We've got one friend who calls the both of us Bonita. Right. Ah, Bonita. Um, and I, I also sometimes call Bon Bon Bon. Oh, that's a nice one, isn't it? Bon Bon. That's like good, good and sweet and lovely. So that's a really nice nickname. So these are all nice nicknames or okay nicknames. We kind of tolerate being called cat, don't we, Katrina? Because we're, we're not, neither of us are really cats, but we kind of put up with it. But sometimes nicknames are not nice. Some nicknames are quite nasty. And I've got some pictures of some historical characters who have nicknames, which... Well, they either are nasty or can be heard as being nasty. So we'll see how we get on. Um, I'm not sure quite how the text will appear. Um, anybody got a clue who this one might be? He's a way, way back. He's got a rather enormous lance there. 
This is Ethelred II of England. Now, does anybody know what his nickname was? Ethelred the Unready. So why do you think he was called that? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? This one's actually one where an old English word has got mistranslated. Actually, the word Ethelred and the, the word that we have as unready are spelt very similarly in Old English, and the name actually means well-advised. So this was Ethelred the king who had good advisers. So it sounds like a nasty nickname, but actually it's not too bad. Who knew? I didn't. <coughs> Anybody who know who this one is? Sorry? No? Okay. This is Ivan IV of Russia. Anybody know what his nickname was? Ivan the Terrible. So why was he called Ivan the Terrible? Because he was. Because he was. <laughs> well, I think he probably was... But actually, the word <laughs> terrible, going away, way back, more meant that somebody was powerful. So he was Ivan the Powerful, who actually was pretty terrible, from what I can understand of him. So, yeah, okay. This is a woman. It's not a great picture, but it was the only one I could find when I was researching. And this is Isabella of France. Anybody heard of Isabella of France? Well done, Wendy. The she-wolf of France. What does that make you think of? If somebody's called a she-wolf. Dangerous to know, yeah. Mad, bad and dangerous to know. Something like that. Um, yeah. This is a really poor picture. Um, can't really see it very well. This is Donald II of Scotland, who I knew nothing about until I was doing my research. So... Um, does anybody know what his nickname was? His nickname was the Madman. That wasn't very helpful, was it? I have no idea what Donald II was like. Somebody who knows about Donald II, was he a good king, a mad king? It's a pretty horrible name to call him, even if he was mad, isn't it? It's not, not kind. Um, but actually, this is not even proven. It was an old Irish poem. It's not even Scottish history. An old Irish poem called The Prophecy of Bachan, Bachan or something like that. I don't know. Birchan, who knows? However you say it in um, Irish, that was uh, the prophecy, this poem that said he was a madman. So it probably was an unkind nickname. Anybody know who we have here? With a rather crazy hat with big ear flaps sticking up. This is Ferdinand I of Portugal, just to prove that Hongkind nicknames go all around the world. Anybody know what his nickname was? Ferdinand the Fickle. Apparently he was a bit prone to changing his mind, so he was Ferdinand the Fickle. Not a very kind name, though, is it? He was also known as Ferdinand the Handsome which is a much nicer, but maybe you could be handsome and fickle. Does, that, does everybody know what fickle means? Does anybody not know what fickle means? just means you... Not faithful. Yeah, not faithful. You keep changing your mind. You're not dependable. Yeah. A lady killer. A lady killer. Okay, thanks, Merit. Yep, so it kind of goes together, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, this is a really old one. It's not even a painting. This is Eric the 11th of Sweden. 
<laughs> Anybody know anything about Swedish kings? Because I certainly don't. This is a really horrible. Oh, Eric the Lisp and the Lame. Apparently, poor Eric had a walking difficulty and a speech impediment, and people were sufficiently cruel to refer to him by referring to those things. And name-calling can be really cruel and unkind at times. And this one, who is this one? This is the Apostle Thomas. Now, who knows what he is sometimes called? He's sometimes called a twin. Yep, okay. Doubting Thomas. Yep. Which is not a very nice thing to call somebody, is it? It means that they, they don't trust, they, 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 they doubt. And one of the things I, I go on about quite a lot, because actually what Thomas did was ask the questions that nobody else was brave enough to ask. He was the one who could say, actually, do you know what, I'm not sure about this, when everybody else just kind of kept quiet. And sometimes I think nicknames like that, that are unkind, actually are because people feel intimidated by somebody or they, they just want to pop them down. They want to try and say, actually, you're a bad person. You're less than me. I'm better than you. And that's not good. I'm sure all of us at times have been called unkind things. I've certainly been called unkind things, um, bearing, ranging from that woman minister to other things that I probably shouldn't repeat in church. And it's not nice. And I know at times I've called people unkind things as well. I'm not perfect. So sometimes I need to say sorry because I've said cruel things. But here's the great thing, is that God will never call us by an unkind nickname. God might call us by a loving nickname. He might say, Bon Bon the Loved. Or he might say, Wendy the Wonderful. But he will never say, Katrina the, um, oh, I can't think of a word that alliterates, that's, that's fit to say in church, careless, or um, something that's not quite so polite. God would never say those things. God loves us, and we're told in the Bible that our names are written in God's heart, and that on God's hand um, is inscribed, well, the Old Testament says the word Israel, which probably means the people rather than the person. And that's rather beautiful as well, that, that God cares so much about all of us, that God has kind of written his, the name of all humanity on God's hand and on God's heart. And we're going to sing a song now. It's a really old song in the words, but maybe not terribly familiar. Um, Before the throne of God above. And it talks about our name being graven on God's hands and written on God's heart. Thanks, Leo. Um.
Our reading today um, comes from the book of John, chapter 20, verse 24, through to John 21, verse 25. Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and I put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my sight. I do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you no fish, have you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast a net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in, because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the lake. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there, with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when he finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt 
because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the rumor spread in the community that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. One of the key values of our congregation here at Hillhead is that all are welcome. And that is something that's really easy to say, but actually it's very challenging to live. We say all are welcome, firmly believing that there is no one who is beyond the redemptive grace of God through Jesus Christ. If no one is beyond redemption and everyone is welcome, then inevitably our life becomes messy and complex as people with different stories, different outlooks on life, different political opinions, different theological perspectives and much more learn what it means to be a community of grace. If we believe that God accepts us with all our faults, our foibles and our failings, 
And if we believe that we have a place in this congregation, then I want to suggest we have no choice but to extend that same welcome and acceptance to other people, even if we strongly disagree with them, even if they wind us up and annoy us, which I'm sure I do to you sometimes, and even if we secretly wish that God might call them to go and join another church. I don't think we ever feel like that, but um, in other churches I've certainly felt that way. Today we're going to focus on the stories of two men who messed up in different ways or are perceived as having messed up in different ways and who still found welcome and acceptance from the risen Christ, Thomas and Peter. If we look closely at the Gospel of John, it's a book with two endings. Either there has been some incredibly careless editing, which means we are told twice at the end of successive chapters, Jesus did many other things, and if they were all written down, blah, blah, blah. Or, and this is what most scholars suggest, there are at least two editions of this gospel. And what we have is, if you like, the second edition, which has had an extra chapter added on, probably after the death of the person who is believed to be the author. But let's start with Thomas. Just a few verses earlier in the Gospel, we were back on the Easter Sunday, the day of resurrection. And the Gospel tells us the disciples were together in a locked room. Now, if we hadn't heard the story before, and if we hadn't read on, we wouldn't know how many that meant. In John's Gospel, there is nothing to tell us that Judas died or disappeared. So there could have been 12. If that was the only thing we'd had, the previous story, there could have been 12 of them there. It's only when we read on that we discover that Thomas, called the twin, wasn't there. And it's only from other Gospels that we can deduce that Judas wouldn't have been there either. And if you actually listened carefully when Rebecca was preaching last week, she was reading from Luke and it says the 12 were there in the room. There you go. So here's the thing. We are told that Thomas wasn't there on that day. And we don't know why he wasn't there. And there's a danger that we try to impose a reason why he wasn't there. But it's the fact that he wasn't there that's really important. Because in some way, Thomas acts as a stand-in for all of us. For all the people who will never see the resurrected Jesus, who has yet to ascend to heaven. And the observations Thomas makes and the questions he asks are honest and authentic. How can I believe in something I haven't seen? Most of us have probably asked that question about something at some time. How can I believe unless I see it? feel it, taste it, experience it. These are questions that go all through history and through all different worldviews. The desire for evidence, or better, for proof, is natural and normal. And often it's very reasonable, isn't it? Certainly as I've been listening to the world news this week and, and 
being very perturbed by what France, the UK, and the USA have been doing in Syria. There is a question about evidence and proof that what they've done was justified. So, of course, sometimes it's right to ask these questions. Why should I trust something is true? Give me some evidence. Better, give me some proof. And then I can believe it. Unless I can see it, hear it, touch it. Unless you give me credible evidence or real proof. Why should I believe you? And what's really important is that Thomas doesn't get chucked out for saying these things. In fact, when we're hearing the second story, we will discover that he, he's still with them. But he is with them on this second week. He wasn't there on the first week, but the second Sunday, he was there. And as plenty of commentators and preachers before me have said hundreds of times, and I've said at least dozens of times, we will never know whether Thomas touched Jesus' hand and side or not. We can never prove whether he followed through on his desire for tangible proof. But what we do know is in that moment, he recognised Jesus as who he was, and he went further than anybody else had done, as recorded in this gospel, or at least further than any other man had done and recorded in this gospel, because he is the one who looks at Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. This wasn't just his friend and his rabbi miraculously back from the dead. Oh no, this was his Lord and his God. The one who had messed up, the one who seems to have been um, on the outside, is the one that recognised who Jesus was. Mostly, when we hear this story, Jesus' response to Thomas is heard as a rebu rebuke and lead us to the nasty nickname of Doubting Thomasy. Top doubt, doubting Thomas, sorry. And I don't think that's fair. And here's why I don't think it's fair. Scholars usually refer to the Gospel of John as being in two parts. And the first part is called the Book of Signs. There are seven signs described that people may come to believe. And then the second half of the book, the Execution and Resurrection, is the Book of Glory. So, the gospel tells us that there were many signs that aren't written down in this book, and yet we've picked out seven to show you. Well, how can it be wrong then for Thomas to seek a sign if the author has written us a whole book full of signs to point us to who Jesus is? To me, what this suggests is that the need for evidence or proof is recognised by the author of the gospel. And they have carefully, guided by the Holy Spirit, recorded these seven key mirac miraculous signs to convince people who cannot physically encounter Jesus. And if that's true, if that's what those stories are about, to me it makes no sense that Jesus tells Thomas off. 
So what does Jesus mean when he says to Thomas, those who believe without seeing are blessed? Well, what I think he's definitely not saying to Thomas is that he is not or cannot be blessed because he needed a sign. I think it's absolutely not that. And I also think that sometimes we misunderstand the word blessing as being material prosperity or success or health and wealth, that kind of thing. And we slip into a careless prosperity theology that wrongly equates blessing with things that are nice for us. If we look at Jesus' own teaching, especially in two of the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, it's clear that this is not the case. I think we could hear what Jesus says to Thomas in the same way as we hear the Beatitudes. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the hungry. You see, blessing isn't a reward. It's paradoxically a state of being that refuses to despair, refuses to be disillusioned no matter what the circumstances are and somehow finds the way to go on. Perhaps what Jesus is saying to Thomas and what Jesus is saying to us is, blessed are those who haven't seen me, who seek signs, who ask questions, for they shall find the belief they seek. To be blessed is to find the belief not to have a happy life, not to have lots of wealth or health. Whatever it means, gospel-wise and Bible-wise, Thomas just disappears into obscurity. Through other ancient texts, we know that he travelled to India and possibly to parts of modern-day Iran, sharing the good news of Jesus and founding churches, the successes of which continue to this day. In fact, according to some websites, were India to have a patron saint, which would be a bit unusual for a majority Hindu country, but if it did, it would be Thomas. And I think Thomas is respected, at least in Hindu belief. Tradition has it that he died as a martyr in India. The king ordered him to be run through with lances. But so the first edition of the Gospel ends. We are left with Thomas, who has doubted and has come to believe. And then we get the second edition. And we get another story that is set out in a similar way. Jesus appears to the disciples. Not twelve, not eleven, but seven. And we get some of the names. Simon Peter, Thomas... Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, who we understand to be James and John, and two others who don't have names. So unlike the Thomas story where we assume that they're all there, at least 11 of them are all there, I've never ever heard anybody saying, well, where were the others when this fishing story took place? Why were they absent? Nobody calls them nasty names because they weren't there. Nathaniel appears only in the Gospel of John, and some people think he is the same person as Bartholomew in the other Gospels, which kind of neatly tidies it up. 
But nobody talks here about Andrew the absent or Matthew the missing. And Thomas doesn't get a nice name here. He's just present. Whatever the, the situation is, things are not going well for the disciples. According to John's chronology, they've now had two encounters with Jesus. They know who he is. And what does Peter do? He goes fishing. He goes back to what he knew before. He's not responding to what he's heard Jesus say to him about having the Holy Spirit, about having the power to forgive sins. He's not doing any of that. He's gone fishing. And these other six have gone with him. Now, poor Peter, it's not a great experience because he was the one who had a fishing business. And you know what? He cannot even catch a fish. He's lost the knack to catch fish. He's been out all night and caught nothing. And he's so demoralized that when some distant figure on the shore says, put your net over that side, well, he's got nothing to lose. So he does. And then they catch all these fish. And the beloved disciple says, ah, I know who it is. It's the Lord. And then we get this delightfully humorous, ridiculous bit. Apparently, Peter was starkest in the boat. And then he puts on his clothes and jumps in the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that is just bonkers. Why would you get dressed and jump in the sea closed? Why wouldn't you get the boat to shore and then get dressed? Well, it's amusing, these two, anyway. Everybody else is still looking at me like I've got ten heads, but... There's something strange going on for Peter. He, he, he's impetuous. We know he's impetuous. So he pulls on his robe and he jumps in the sea and heads off to the, st- the shore. And everybody else is left to pull the boat in and pull the fish in. Because Peter, being Peter, he's off on his own little way. And so they get to the shore and they all have breakfast. And nobody says, who is it? Nobody asks questions because by now they recognise it's Jesus. And seemingly Jesus doesn't tell them off for having gone back fishing when they're supposed to be out doing whatever they're supposed to be doing. And now we begin to discover something of what's going on for Peter. Peter and Jesus go off for a walk. And Jesus asked him three questions. And what I love about them is that they do have a degree of ambiguity about them. And I know I've preached this before here, and I'm, I don't apologise for that, because I think that ambiguity is really important. So I'm giving you my take on what the questions mean. Jesus says, Do you love me more than anyone or anything else? Am I the most important person or thing in your life? More important than your family, your friends, your home, your work, your fishing boat, anything. And Peter says, yeah, you know I love you. But do you love me? Do you really, really love me with every ounce, every gram of your being? And Peter says, yes, you know I love you. Do you love me? Do you love me? 
Do you love me? Do you love me? Where would the stress come in that final question? How does Peter hear it? How do we hear it? And Peter just can't hold it in any longer. He says, you know everything, you know I love you. And so Jesus responds. Some scholars have compared this part of John's gospel right at the end with the Great Commission in Matthew's gospel. So the commission comes to Peter, who would go to Rome and found a congregation to which the Roman Catholic community throughout the world traces its origins. Some Bibles put in headings to try and help us, but actually in doing so they force us to think in certain ways. And very often this story is called the reinstatement of Peter, as if he had somehow been cast out or absented himself from the rest of the disciples. And what really strikes me is that that's not the case. He is present on all three occasions and he is still apparently the leader of the group. He's the one that says, let's go fishing. It's not that he needs to be reinstated. Rather, he needs to be reminded what his call is and what the demands of it are. The story ends with Peter and the, walking along with Jesus and he sees the beloved disciple following them. And he diverts Jesus' attention because, you know, it's still a bit scary. stuff. Well, what about him? Now, let's just forget about the mysterious bits that go on there. What Jesus says to Peter is basically this. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about anybody else. This is about you. You need to decide whether or not you're going to follow me. The book of Acts and the letters give us hints as to how Peter's story continued. Peter learned to question some of his taken-for-granted views, and he learned to think about including people he would never previously have had anything to do with, people he would have avoided. He's the one that spoke out against circumcision. He's the one that had the, the dream of the vision of the net with all the animals in it. I like to think that although he undoubtedly continued to be impetuous and sometimes quarrelsome, Peter's encounter with Jesus and the fellowship with his other disciples enabled him to be a loving and welcoming ambassador for the gospel. And then the story ends. The gospel finishes for a second time. But the thing is, the story doesn't finish there. It carries on through history as more and more people have heard the story, weighed up the evidence. Some of them have seen signs or experienced signs and some of them haven't. But all have found welcome and acceptance and have tried to follow Jesus in some way, in some place, telling others about him or serving him in practical ways in a hurting world, but his beautiful world that is God's world. And it carries on in our time with our stories. Maybe as you've listened this morning, something in the story of Thomas or the story of Peter has had a resonance with your own story. But maybe it hasn't. It doesn't really matter whether it does or doesn't. What 
matters is it reminds us that the church is a community of forgiven failures. People who found welcome and acceptance from God through Jesus and who, helped and guided by the Holy Spirit, are entrusted to draw others into the wonder of that grace, mercy and love. To do this, to include those who are different from us, who will inevitably let us down sometimes, and who we will inevitably let down sometimes, is what it means to be truly welcoming. And I honestly think we do well in our church. We do a good job of welcoming and accepting people with questions, with doubts, with struggles, whatever it is, who are trying to follow Jesus. That's why we use that language, because we're all trying to follow Jesus. And of course we all fall short of our our ideals. And of course we disappoint each other and disappoint ourselves sometimes. And of course we all need to continue to be blessed and given the grace of God through Jesus. The Jesus who loved and trusted Thomas and Peter and enabled them to live truly amazing lives of service. Maybe what Jesus is saying to us this morning is this. Feed my lambs, take care of and feed my sheep. Look out for the little ones, look out for the grown-up ones, take care of each other. Follow me wherever life's journey takes you and I will be with you.
we come together in our prayers for others and in our prayers for each other. Let us pray. <clears throat> Loving God, who comes amongst us to share your love for those who are in need of healing, we bring you others and we bring to you each other, each with our needs to be healed, our own individual concerns, and each with our own individual needs. We give thanks for your presence amongst us, walking with us in love every step of the way. Loving God, who comes amongst us to share your love for those who are on the margins, we bring you others, and we bring you each other, each with our own doubts, with our own needs to see the scars on your hands. We give thanks for your forgiveness amongst us, walking with us in love every step of the way. Forgiving God, who comes amongst us through your Son to share your forgiveness upon us. We bring you others and we bring to you each other, all with our own needs for forgiveness. We give thanks for your sacrificial presence amongst us, walking with us, feeding us your lambs, in love every step of the way. Resurrected and resurrecting God, we give thanks for the presence of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who comes amongst us, and for the ultimate sacrifice of giving his life for our forgiveness. And in, resurrection, and in resurrection, calling us by our names, walking amongst us, walking beside us, in love and forgiveness, asking us to leave ourselves, inviting us to come and follow you. We give thanks, and in that thanks we too pray that we will walk with each other, sharing the love that you shared with us in forgiveness, comfort and joy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
Loving God, as we offer you our gifts, whether great or small, whether planned or spontaneous, whether physically in this offering bag or invisibly through bank transfers, and we know that you accept them as you accept us, and we pray that you guide us in how we employ them as we seek to be and to speak the good news of your welcome in this place and beyond. Amen. loving God, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, inspired by the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, and knowing ourselves blessed by the promise of your accompaniment, now and always. Mm-hmm. 